Oh, boy, that was not very... Oh, my God, my voice is breaking. Hey, everyone, how are you? It's Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Oh, jeez. My signature introduction is failing me. I don't know. Oh, my God. Oh, I, I hope I made you laugh. Hello, how are you? Happy Saturday to you. Um, uh, happy, sunny, wonderful weekend to you compared to last weekend in Minnesota. Oh, my goodness. I'm thrilled to be here, of course. Um where this very, very unique show highlights idealism and idealists, humans trying to work for positive change in the world. And, and just, just welcome. It's great to talk to you. We've had, we have another great show. The big interview is with two idealists who are working to help transgender persons and their families move to Minnesota from states where they or their children are being targeted by state action. You know, I've been talking about that quite a bit. In my C block, as usual, I will talk about my work as an idealist. But let us begin here in the A block with our, fe- with our featured idealist, someone whom you may not have ever heard of, but whose legacy is helping to educate hundreds of thousands of students to this day. I'm speaking of Howard Zinn, Z-I-N-N, an American historian, philosopher, and socialist, socialist intellect, uh, who was born in New York City in 1922 to two Jewish immigrant parents with little education. However, lucky for Zen, lucky for Howard, his parents proceeded uh, to procure 20 volumes of Charles Dickens' collected works, which for Zen sparked his lifelong interest in understanding humans and the world that they have created. Another important event event in Zinn's young life also shaped him. As a young man living in New York City, Zinn befriended several communists from his Brooklyn neighborhood. One day, uh, Zinn attended a peaceful political rally put on by the communists, um, but the police in New York were having none of it. And police on horses broke, broke up the meeting, broke up the, the peaceful rally violently. And in that incident, Zinn was struck and knocked unconscious. That one incident about the power of the state over innocent people would shape Howard Zinn for the rest of his life. In World War II, Zinn joined the U.S. Army Air Corps and became an officer. He acted as a bombardier (coughs) bombing targets in Germany, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. Now remember, a bombardier is the one who looks through the site and hits the button to drop the bombs. On one particular bombing run in April of 1945, just three weeks before the war ended, um, Zinn's formation of planes dropped napalm bombs on Royan, a seaside resort in France where German soldiers were waiting out the end of the war. Later, after the war, as he conducted some postdoctoral research, Howard Zinn visited Royan, again, France, where he learned that the bombing he participated in had killed more than 1,000 French civilians. Zinn subsequently wrote a book, The Politics of History, in which he wrote that bombing that city had little military value other than to advance the military careers of those who ordered it. Remember, it was towards the end of the war. This turns Zinn into a critic of subsequent U.S. bombings of civilians in all wars, including in Vietnam and in Iraq. And after the war, 
Howard Zinn attended um, New York University and then Columbia University where he received his doctorate. Zinn then taught at Spelman College in Atlanta from 1956 to 1963, from which uh, Zinn was ultimately fired for insubordination because he was, quote, radicalizing Spelman students, unquote, to resist segregation in the South. And after that, Zinn moved to Boston, where he taught political science at Boston University for 24 years until retiring in 1988 at the age of 66. Parenthetically, I just have to throw in, my time in Boston, 1979 to 1988, overlapped with the last part of Zinn's career at Boston University. I'm highlighting Howard Zinn for two reasons. The first is that while teaching at Spelman, Um, college from 1956 to 1963. Zinn was an advisor to SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Campaign, which with the NAACP and CORE, the Congress of Organized Racial Equality, um, were working and, and involved in working to desegregate lunch counters and other spaces in the South. In 1964, Zinn was involved in organizing freedom schools during what became known as the Freedom Summer, when a thousand northern college students went to Mississippi to organize voting registration and other activities. You may recall that it was that summer, the summer of 1964, Freedom Summer, when three young civil rights activists, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwermer, were murdered near Philadelphia, Mississippi by Ku Klux Klan members. Zinn would later call for the U.S. to withdraw from Vietnam. And then as he did that, Daniel Ellsberg, who you may recall, my older listeners, who was the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers about how the U.S. knew that the Vietnam War was unwinnable as early as 1965, but they continued to throw young (coughs) Americans at it to die and bomb the heck out of North and South Vietnam, causing a lot of Vietnamese to die. Daniel Ellsberg gave Howard Zinn um, and Noam Chomsky... um, a copy of the Pentagon Papers after Daniel Ellsberg copied them and leaked, he leaked the papers to Zinn. Zinn and Noam Chomsky edited and annotated the copy of the, of the papers that they got, and they in turn gave it to Senator Mike Gravel, who read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. Now, you may remember, okay, the reason he read it into the congressional record was that they wanted to get the Pentagon Papers out. They knew that the papers were stolen. They didn't know how, I mean, they were worried about, everyone was worried about being prosecuted for espionage or whatever the heck would go into that. And they came up with the plan that if it was read into the congressional record, Mike Gravel couldn't be prosecuted. He couldn't because it was in his, part of his official duties. That's how the Pentagon Papers came out. Subsequently, there was a book um, that, that came out that was based on what Zinn and Chomsky did to, to edit and, and organize the Pentagon Papers. Later on, Howard Zinn would also go on and Zinn would also go on and oppose the war in Iraq. The other reason I highlight Howard Zinn as our featured idealist is that he advocated for viewing the world and the world history through the eyes of those who lacked power 
and um, and understanding the world through through people um, who lacked power. Okay, because it is after all the people in power who write the history. As Zinn said in 2005, quote, we were not born critical of existing society. There was a moment in our lives or a month or a year when certain facts appeared before us, startled us, and then caused us to question beliefs that were strongly fixed in our consciousness, embedded there by years of family prejudices, orthodox schooling, imbibing of newspapers, radio, and television. This would seem to lead to a simple conclusion, that we all have an enormous responsibility to bring to the attention of others information they do not have, which has the potential of causing them to rethink long-held ideas. And in one of his last interviews before his death in 2010, Howard Zinn shared about how he would like to be remembered. He said, he said this, he'd like to be remembered for introducing a different way of thinking about the world, about war, about human rights, about equality. And he went on to say, quote, for getting more people to realize that the power which rests so far in the hands of people with wealth and guns, that the power ultimately rests in people themselves and that they can use it. At certain points in history, they have used it. Black people in the South used it. People in the women's movement used it. People in the anti-war movement used it. People in other countries who have overthrown tyrannies have used it. He went on to say that he wanted to be known as, quote, somebody who gave people a feeling of hope and power that they didn't have before, unquote. Um, I, I urge you to read up about Howard Zinn. He authored many books, including an autobiography titled You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train and the widely acclaimed A People's History of the United States, which sold two million copies, along with also authoring a book titled The Politics of History. Howard Zinn's work spurred, um, after his death, the Zinn Education Project, which provides a curriculum for educators to teach, quote, a people's history, unquote, viewed from the eyes of those who are oppressed. It teaches that what we've been traditionally taught is wrong, like that Christopher Columbus was kind to the natives, quote, unquote, natives, or that George Washington was benevolent um, to... Native Americans. Uh, the George Zinn Education Project um, is, is much more than traditional uh, classroom teaching. And it is a wonderful, wonderful legacy for an incredible idealist. By all means, go and Google uh, the Zinn Education Project. And if I have any educators here, maybe you're already well aware of the Zinn Education Project. And, uh, and, and, and if so, great. But if you're not aware, okay, um, go, go Google it, please. Um, I'm just thrilled that I've stumbled on him. And this also shows you how poor my education would be because one would think with the work that I do that I would have already known about Howard Zinn before I prepared for this radio show. Okay, there you go. That's our featured idealist for the week. When we come back, we're going to talk to two more idealists trying to start up the Minnesota Transplant Project. And it's not about, it's not about body parts, but it's about heart. You'll understand why 
when we do the when we do the segment. Okay, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on LA 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Visit me on or follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug for as, I don't know how long I'll be on there with what Elon Musk is doing. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. LA 2.0 Radio. All right, now is the time for the for the big, the big, big interview, as you know, with every show. And we have two really great guests from a brand new organization, brand new nonprofit named the Minnesota Transplant Project. And it's not about body parts, but instead it's about hearts. And you'll understand uh, that in a second. We have with us uh, Esther Blevins and Dr. Nomi Ostrander from the University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, Esther Blevins is a Cuban-American Miami native and a recent transplant. It hasn't, hasn't even lived here a year from Knoxville, Tennessee. And Esther relocated to work um, with the Minnesota Opera as its associate institution institutional giving director, and she has been instrumental in pushing DEI initiatives in the performing arts community in various ways. And Dr. Nomi Ostrander is the associate professor and associate professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, She's also a therapist serving transgender, non-binary, and queer individuals and partners. And Dr. Ostrander, am I using the right pronouns for you? Did I screw up? Uh, no. Uh, okay. My pronouns are she, they. Okay, great. Okay. All right. Well, that's, I'm going to make sure of that. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Ostrander, Dr. Nomi, okay, and uh, Esther Blevins, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, and, and, and so what, uh, what I want to do is, you know, Esther, let's just give the audience a little bit of idea about how it is that we're talking, okay? And that is, you know, on... Uh, Monday, literally of this week, you emailed me out of the blue and told me about at two in the morning. Uh, at, okay, at two in the morning. Well, I didn't see it at that time, and told me about this thing called the Minnesota uh, Transplant Project, and um, and I read. Uh, I I went to the website. And I read it with great interest, and and I wanted to have you on the show immediately. So. Uh, could you, for our audience, tell us what is the Minnesota Transplant Project? What is it about? And what's its uh, genesis? Well, the genesis of it is having been a recent transplant, uh, I was just overwhelmed by all of the things that were happening extremely recently to all of my friends down there. Um, And I can't express the feeling more than to say that it was a sense of love and heartbreak, just the constant sense of heartbreak um, and an overarching sense of fury and feeling helpless and realizing that the helplessness in this case for me and my privileged circumstance did, did not need to exist and was a lie I was kind of telling to myself. Um, so one of my best friends that I've made in very recent months in Minnesota is um, one of our NAR board members in his name is Frankie. And Frankie is also Cuban American. 
And the second we learned that about each other, we both work at the opera. Um, that was like this instant connection of, oh yes, how many Cubans are possible could possibly be in Minnesota? And we're in the same building. That's amazing. So we became kind of besties. And I called him one day, just I was so upset. There was one day where a particular bill um passed into law in Kentucky where I was so very upset that I did not sleep at all. I was just angry the whole night and feeling so helpless. This was this and, would have been a bill that would have been anti-transgender bill. Is that, that what you're referring correct. to? Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Um so I was very upset that whole night, just feeling very helpless. Um and I called Frankie because we have um we're allowed to work from home some days, some, a couple days of the week at the opera. I gave him a call and said, am I out of my mind by saying that this is something we should do? It's a really big undertaking and it, it is potentially dangerous. And he said, absolutely not. You've identified a need. Let's do this. Let's run with it. Um, and we ran with it. <laughs> and here we are. Okay. Well, let's talk just so we, thanks for the genesis. What is the Minnesota Transplant Project? Um, what is that it intended is important, to do? Is it not? Yes. So what it does is we we notice right away that the thing that we are missing, my husband's phone is ringing and he is not even in this room, which is wonderful. Um, the what the project does is it collects information from all of the places where a person who is trying to move to the state would need to find that information, but is perhaps overwhelmed and is not able to find them. And we take in help requests from people who would otherwise not be able to come up here because of the circumstances they find themselves in, um, to relocate to a place where they can um, get the care that they need or just even be who they are and not get, um, the kind of pushback that they would from their government and for their government officials. And, um, just like whatever the local anti-trans culture is, um, because, you know, there is a lot to being oppressed besides your government oppressing you, right? It's the community at large. Okay. So, so this is mainly, I mean, this is primarily focused towards LGBTQ plus people and, and specifically mm -hmm. trans folks who live in other states other than Minnesota, states that are where there is oppression going on, legalized discrimination against trans people and LGBT, LGB folks. And what the Transplant Project is aimed at doing is helping those folks come to Minnesota, which is a safe state. Do I have that right? That is correct. Basically, okay. <laughs> it's a transgender refugee program to the state of Minnesota. I think that's a really great phrase. Okay, trans refugee uh, program. Dr. Ostrander, how did you get involved with this? And and, and you're, you're safely ensconced up in uh, lovely Duluth. Mm -hmm. um, what is your role in this? And, and uh, what do you vision for this nascent organization? I mean, yet you've barely been on paper for just even a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, uh, so I came to know this organization through uh, one of the board members whom I've known for probably three years, um, and was so excited to see um, that this organization existed, and immediately knew that I wanted to be involved, uh, because I, I know uh, sort of a handful of folks uh, in Minnesota who are trans and who have moved from other states. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, I'm thinking of uh, some who move from Wyoming or Kentucky um, because their states were uh, actively anti-trans and were taking away their uh, civil rights. Um, and so I, I couldn't not be involved, I felt like, uh, because I understand the value of community and I understand the, you know, the, that as much as somebody will say, well, why don't you just move if, if it's not a, you know, a safe state for you, that that, you know, misses a whole lot of, uh, economic and social factors, um, that are involved. And at least through this organization, um, we can help provide some funding to help people move and also provide them with community connection once they get up here. Well, with, with Minnesota becoming a trans refuge state, Okay, um, mm-hmm. that doctor that um, Governor Walls has uh, has has signed legislation to that effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, we have the distinction of being one of the few states in the country that has been open and welcoming and pro- proclaiming that the machinery of the government will help support trans folks who who need to come to Minnesota for their medical care or just to feel safe. Um, and of course, that is a wonderful thing. I've got to tell both of you just last week, um, in light of what Minnesota is attempting to do, we got a lot of noise here today, Brett. Um, uh, in light of, you know, what Minnesota is attempting to do that, you know, we need like a navigator Then we need somebody who can help, uh, folks who have become not by their choice refugees, um, and help them make their way to Minnesota and feel, get acclimated and feel safe, just as we the the state would do for somebody who is a refugee, uh, in the in the, you know, in the sense of having to leave a country. Okay, I was going to say in the sense of being political, but these are political refugees here in our own United States, having to come. Um, let me uh, ask um, uh, uh, Esther, what. Uh, First of all, can you give, if for people want to read more about the Minnesota Transplant Project, how could they find more out about it? And um, if they wanted to contribute, how could they do that? Sure. Um, you can always go to our website, which is MN, as in Minnesota, mntransplantproject.org. Um, a shorthand for it that will redirect to it that we also have, just for convenience, is mntp.org. Um you can always email us as well, which is hello at mntp.org, and we'll be happy to answer your questions. Um, if you use Linktree, we do have an at on Linktree, which has resources and links and um, applications to request assistance. Um, and our add on that is the same as our website at MN Transplant Project. Okay, great. Oh, there's also a GoFundMe, by the way. If you want to go and GoFundMe, just type the name of the project, it should pop up for you. Okay, that great. All right, so there are various ways to contribute, and you're—I mean, literally—you're just getting up off the ground, and and I understand that, and and so there's some growing pains that that you'll go through, just like any organization, nonprofit will go through. Um, I'm going to take the liberty, uh, Esther, of reading uh, an email uh, that you had forwarded to me from somebody who is located down in um, Knoxville, I believe. And I'm not going to name this person, but I'm going to read what this person has to say, okay? To give our listeners an idea of why this is so necessary to have the organization that you and uh, uh, Nomi and others are creating. So he quote, 
I'm a white, stocky, androgynous, androgynous, visible, trans, masculine person. I've been out for 12 years. It's never been like this. I used to be left alone, but now I get disgusted stares and comments when I leave my house. I can't work in public without daily harassment, and no one will hire me now. I fear, I fear being raped again daily. We have multiple neo-Nazi groups trying to kill us in Knoxville. I'm disabled, and I can't leave on my own, unquote. And that's the kind of person in that kind of a situation that your project is aimed at helping to relocate from Knoxville, for example, up to Minnesota. Do I have that right? That is unfortunately a very common um, sort of request and the sort of person that is that we definitely need to help. Yes. Okay. Well, in, uh, and uh, Dr. Nomi, I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about the so the psychological effects you know, of what's going on. You're also, you're also a therapist and, Mm -hmm. you know, you treat folks and even here in Minnesota where we're all safe, right? I mean, we have like laws on top of laws protecting queer people generally. Um, But are you seeing, are you seeing fear even in your patients located in Minnesota? Mm -hmm. Are you seeing and hearing about fear about what's going on across the country? Absolutely. Um, And I should note, even in Minnesota, while we do have laws on top of laws, uh, there are still obviously parts of the state that uh, may not be uh, trans affirming or or trans welcoming. And, you know, I think of uh, I was working with a client uh, earlier this week um, who talked about sort of a a scary bathroom situation um, where they were, you know, driving from point A to point B and somewhere in the middle had to go to the bathroom and had gone into a McDonald's and um, uh, had sort of a, a rough time with some people who, um, you know, were very anti-trans and, um, you know, just the, the feeling and the panic and the, the night terrors from that. Um, it's, it certainly impacts day to day and, you know, even if you look at things like um, detransition um, literature, like one of the things that you see, one of the main reasons that you see for detransitioning is I didn't find the support that I hoped I would find um, as a trans person. Um, and so, you know, you have however many number of folks who are detransitioning and then living with sort of that burden of I can't be who I am. Um because of society and you know that you're trading essentially uh various uh mental health issues um one for the other on that well and are you seeing in your patients that they're also anxious about what's going on across the country not just maybe in greater Mm -hmm. minnesota Um, absolutely yeah no absolutely uh because i see a lot of folks uh from illinois as well because that's where i had moved from um, was from chicago and again, people who are in sort of a major city like Chicago that is very trans affirming, uh, the number of people who are just looking around and feel like the world's on fire and trying to figure out how is it um, that essentially the country has been, you know, created a, into a hodgepodge of states that they can go to um, and worried too that, you know, this is just the beginning. Like, does the, does the right go towards 
um, taking away same-sex marriages, um, what other uh, right. what other things happen? And I've got some friends who are um, in Florida who um, are trans and they have children who also worry about uh, what happens to their parental rights um, in a mm-hmm. state that seems, uh, you know, really active in wanting to rip apart families there. Well, and, you know, and I was just telling somebody yesterday, um, I gave a, a talk to a group of people and I told them that I don't believe that they're done with the transgender community. I mean, I, I think that with 24 and with um, DeSantis uh, announcing his presidential run, I just expect it to get much worse, if that's even possible, mm-hmm. but much worse um, for yeah. uh, trans and non-binary folks and lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, but particularly for the trans and non-binary community. Esther, what is the next step? What are the next steps for the uh, Minnesota Transplant Project? You've got, you've got it. You've got set up on paper. You know, you've got your five hundred one c three. You got your nonprofit status. Okay, you're starting to assemble a board. What else is it that you're that you you've got on your plate to get up and running before you can start, you know, helping people actually come to Minnesota? Well, we live in a capitalist society, so unfortunately, that is going to be a lot of fundraising and a lot of asking people to donate and coming up with fundraisers of our of our own. And if we can manage to figure out earned revenue, that would be fantastic. But right now, money is what makes the world go round. And coming from southern states, and not all the states that are uh, persecuting transgender folks right now are southern, but generally speaking, those red states, um, there is a higher rate of poverty, especially with this demographic. And Minnesota is more expensive to live in if you're coming from that other state. Once you're here, you've got your job, everything is on par. Um, it, you're, you'll be fine once you get here and you're established. Um, but that hurdle to get here as a recent um, transplant myself um, is very, very difficult. You know, as you said earlier, moving, why don't you just move? You have no idea how difficult that is until you have to do it and you don't come from a, from a place of extreme privilege. Um, you know, deposits to get into place first month's rent you have to put ahead of place you have to pay deposits on all of your utilities you have to get there um and there's the trauma of leaving your home right there is so much and we want to really help with that financial barrier because at this point there are so many people who would have left already but the money is in the way and we need to fill that gap so what we're doing is um, just this weekend and next week, we're going to have a bit of a board retreat to figure out what our fundraising strategies are going to be, as opposed to just throwing things in the ether and just hoping that they work. So um, that is our next step. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, absolutely a big step. And are you going Are you going to work on helping families, not just individual, but families to come to Minnesota? Um, Yeah, sure. If you are a parent and you've got a transgender child and you're like, I don't feel safe for my child. I don't feel that my child is in a safe place. Yeah, absolutely. Families get families get to come. Thank you, Tim Wall. Okay. All right. Um, Well, uh, we're getting towards the end of the interview and I always ask um, my interviewees uh, what made them an idealist. The show is as we explained off mic is about idealism and people trying to make positive change in the world. Dr. Nomi, what 
What made you an idealist? What made you want to make a positive difference in the world? Yeah, I think it's sort of twofold. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, uh, as the auto industry was sort of disinvesting or uh, slash, you know, destroying the community. Um, and at that time, I also found punk rock. And I think um, being a punk and sort of a DIY mentality uh, is a thing that just said, well, we'll do it ourselves um, and we'll make it happen. And I think that that's uh, I think that's sort of the spirit of this project as well is, you know, there's no point in waiting for um, for everything to just be perfect. Let's do it ourselves and let's let's uh, create a fix here. OK, great. Thank you. Esther, what, what made you so idealistic? Because I've got to believe you got a new job. Well, you're living in a new place. you got a new job that's got demands. The Minnesota Opera is about as top shelf as you can get in terms of performing arts. And, um, and so you got plenty on your plate. What's made you, why are you so idealistic so much that you're going to spend so much more time and energy to be involved with something like this? In preparation for your question, I actually called my mother and asked her if I've always been this way. And she said, why are you even asking me? You have always been this way. Um, But my earliest memory where I remember noticing fury at inequality um, is, so again, I'm Cuban American and my parents had not been in this country all that long. My father had been in the country maybe a couple of months before he met my mother. Um, and I had a half brother in Cuba. And, but you know, in our family, you're just brother. You're, you're not a half sibling, right. you're just a sibling. And I remember being a, a tiny little toddler, like two, three years old and getting on the phone with him and him, t- him saying that he was hungry and he was so happy I had food. And I remember like my father, like I would accidentally spill cereal on the floor and he would be beyond himself upset, not because I spilled cereal, but because there's cereal on the floor and his son in Cuba has no food. <laughs> and I remember just being really devastated by the concept that I was, that I got to have something because of who who I happened to be born as and where I happened to be. And because where he happened to be and who he happened to be born as, he did not have. And that drove me absolutely bonkers. And it kind of went up from there. My mom has stories about how on Saturday mornings after cartoons, the uh, Feed the Children would come on and I would start sobbing and I get really mad at Santa for not bringing those kids toys and food. And I started writing angry lenders to Santa. So I think I've always been this way, but it probably stems from having that brother in Cuba and realizing the accident of where my birth occurred and who I was born as has too much to do with what I'm able to accomplish. And that is just not fair. Great. Great. Well, thank you both for uh, sharing about what made you idealistic I've enjoyed talking with you here. I wish you the very best with the Minnesota Transplant Project. And uh, please keep me advised of the progress that you're making, okay? And I wish uh, you the the best and success as soon as possible because there are people in need. So thank you both, uh, Dr. Nomi Ostrander and Esther Blevins, for being on LE2.0 Radio. 
and uh, have a great rest of your day, okay? Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Ellie. All right, take care, everyone. Okay, folks, uh, that is about the Minnesota Transplant Project. Go Google it and, and find out about it. Uh, when I come back from my break, I'll give you a C block where I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. And frankly, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to talk about. There is so much I could share. I'll be back in a second. Thanks. I want to take the breath that's true. We're back. LA 2.0 Radio. Okay, the Minnesota Transplant Project. Check it out. All right? I'll look forward to seeing uh, what good good work, good things that they will uh, be doing in the coming months. Um, again, very much needed. There are people suffering across this country. Um, all right, my work, C-Block, my work as an idealist. Well, you know, um, it has been... Uh, it's a, it's a slow May, okay? Remember I told you some months ago about how the anti-wokeism efforts that are going on in country right now, um, on top of throwing in Dylan Mulvaney and, my God, the backlash against Bud Light and the backlash generally against transgender people across the country, my work has slowed down dramatically. For example, this time last year, um, of April of 2022, this time in May last year, I had 20 events, 20 talks, 20 events booked, at least 20. I think I actually had 22 booked for June. Okay. This year, I have four booked for June. And apart from, I mean, it has a financial impact on me, but don't worry, I'm okay. I started my social security this month. Hey, what do you know? Um, apart from that, um, what bothers me greatly about it is my inability to get in front of people to talk about them, to talk to, about the, the need for us to be more inclusive, to be more willing to take risks, to be willing to get to know people who are different or other, because that is my remaining life's mission. And also talking about the goodness of 98% of all humans, which you know I say frequently, and so if I can't get in front of people because I'm not invi being invited to do that, that message is not getting out. It's not. And that pains me. That hurts, you know. I mean, yeah, the money is one thing, but nah, I need to, you know, I, I, I'm an idealist. I'm trying to change the world. I cannot change the world if no one is willing to listen. Um. On a more positive note, yes, on Thursday, um, I, I did not one but two book clubs that had read my book, I'm Getting New Ellen. One was a, a, a club that was out of Thomson Reuters, so local to Minnesota, but the other was with the New York State Bar Association. So I had a bunch of people out of, out of the city um, and in, in greater New York. I think we also had some person from Cyprus who was on that call uh, late yesterday afternoon to talk about my book. You know, and I got the question, okay, because the book is 10 years old, Getting to Ellen, available on Amazon, Kindle, or Nook, or go to Majors and Quinn and just pick it up personally. Um, I got the question, you know, is the book still relevant? 
And I thought for a second and I said, you know, I know the book is 10 years old, but I think it's more relevant today than it was even when the book came out in 2013. Um, because in 2013, trans people were starting to become visible, but now they're far more visible. And now we are mar far more, as you heard in the last segment, far more under the gun. I mean, not literally yet, but I fear that that is actually coming. Okay. Um, and so I think that it's, I think it's really important that the world at large hear a story about somebody attempting to, to deal with their gender identity and then trying to conform to general society because that is what I tried to do. I tried to suppress who it is, who it is that I am, okay? I tried to suppress it for decades because I didn't want to hurt people. God, I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want to, you know, lose my law firm. I didn't want to do a whole lot of things that were going to be detrimental. And of course, another question I got uh, yesterday from one of those clubs, which is, what would you have liked to have known then that you know now? And that is that some things in life aren't choices. I didn't realize that. I thought that I could choose to stay a man if I only worked harder or got the right therapist or drank a little bit more alcohol or whatever. And I came to learn that some things in life aren't choices, including, you know, how you identify with your gender or your sexuality or both. So, um, so it was rewarding to be able to talk to two groups yesterday about my book and, and it, they, I was well received and really nice people, some really great questions. And so that's me. I was able yesterday to spread the word and part of that word was about what's going on in America right now towards transgender people. And I've just got to tell you, okay, it's only going to get worse. DeSantis is announcing uh, tomorrow or Monday it's only going to get worse once he's in the election, aimed at my community. You watch and see. All right, well, that's it for our show. Gosh, we ran out of time. A big thanks to my producer, Patrick, as well as Brett. They kind of double-teed me here a little bit. And to you, my listeners, a big thanks for you being here again. Now, next Sunday, next weekend, and the weekend after that are going to have to be repeat shows because one is the holiday, the station's off, and the other is I have to go to Colorado for a celebration of life for a family member who passed. I'll talk about that after Colorado because um, it was a young person who died of a drug overdose. So at any rate, take care. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, and I'll be talking to you. Go out and do good in the world. Bye-bye.